Well, thank you again for uh, inviting me here to speak to you. It's a privilege to come and just to uh, expound God's word to you. Um, it's been quite an interesting uh, passage to look at and quite challenging to kind of think through. And I just pray that this morning's message will be something that uh, really speaks to you and challenges you. So let's begin with a, a simple question. What's the meaning of life? Any takers? Perhaps one of my favorite jokes will help. There was a Sunday school teacher and he was teaching a class of young children and uh, she started by uh, playing a guessing game. So she said, what am I describing? And she went on to say, a small brown furry animal with a big bushy tail, likes to climb trees, uh, fond of nuts. And she looked down and she saw one little boy in the front row doing a bit of fidgeting. And uh, she said, Robbie, what do you think? And he said, well, miss, I know the answer should be Jesus, but it sounds like you're describing a squirrel. <laughs> you know, the answer to everything is Jesus is a common uh, running Sunday school joke. But actually, the boy is right in this case and in our question. The answer to life is not a set of rules or a set of principles or an emotional state. It's actually a person. And that person is Jesus. You know, in 1 John we read the words, in the beginning was the word. And if you read that in Greek, that in the beginning was the logos. And that's actually a philosophical term that the Greeks and Romans would discuss. And it actually is talking about the very essence of life, the purpose of life, the logos. And what John does when he comes with his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the purpose of life, and that purpose of life is Jesus. John simply says, it's Jesus. Now, everyone in life does not always agree with John or with us if we claim the same thing. And likely the reason for that is because we have a different worldview. Some of us uh, have thought about our worldview. Some of us have just inherited it from friends or family or maybe culture around us. But a worldview is a simple look at what is the meaning of life. Who am I? Where do I come from? What's my purpose? What's life all about? And the answers to these questions, and we all have them, even if we haven't thought about it, influence our behaviours and our actions. If we think happiness is the purpose of life, then we're going to go around doing things that make us happy. Whether that's travelling, or hobbies, or family, or relationships. If we think doing good is the purpose of life, then we're going to go around pursuing good causes, charities, saving the environment. However, what we can ultimately miss is that the purpose of life does not lie in these things. Although these things might be good things, if we start making them ultimate things, if we start making them the purpose of life, then they become what the Bible calls idols. And idols are things that rightly take the place that only Jesus should have in life. So, maybe at this point you're asking, when's he going to talk about the passage? 
Well, I really think that worldviews has a major part to play in this passage. And if we haven't correctly aligned our worldview, then it prevents us from seeing Jesus. And it prevents us from putting him in the rightful place of Lord and Master and King. And we actually find this further down in 1 John, if we read on, where it says in verse 10 and 11, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those were his own, did not receive him. Here we see two distinct sets of people. There were those that were the non-Jews, the people that didn't claim to follow the God of the Bible. And although Jesus is their maker, their creator, they didn't see him. They didn't know him. And then we have the Jews themselves. The Old Testament, you know, we hear about God specifically choosing Abraham, a people for himself. These were the Jews. These were the people, if anyone could recognize Jesus, you would have thought it would have been the Jews. But he came to his own, and John says, his own did not receive him. This is all down to their worldview, blinding them to the truth. The Bible calls this sin. Because it's putting something else in the place that Jesus should hold. They may be good things, useful things, God-given things. Beauty, health, money, sex, leadership. But when we make them ultimate things, in God's place, they become idols. They become sin. So in our passage today, we observe two different worldviews getting in the way of seeing Jesus. And the surprising thing is that these two people that hold these views are called disciples. And that's one of the first shocking things that we read in the verse um, in Matthew. We know about Judas as the betrayer, but he's labelled as one of the twelve. There are two people in this passage that have had the closest connection to Jesus in human form as anyone else could have. They spent three years travelling around with him, witnessing everything that he did and said. One of them was even the leader of the disciples. He witnessed certain miracles that none of the other disciples did. He witnessed the transfiguration. He was even there, just prior to this passage, at Jesus' lowest point of need. Where Jesus asked him to stay with him and pray while he really struggled in the garden. So who are these two people? One I mentioned, Judas, and then the other, Peter. So I'd just like to look at kind of this topic from three different perspectives. First from Judas, second from Peter, and finally from Jesus. So what do we see from the perspective of Judas? We don't know a whole lot about Judas looking at the Gospels. We only know he enters the story after Jesus picks the twelve, after praying all night on the mountain. And the only other time apart from this kind of small section in the Gospels about his betrayal is we hear something about Judas from John around the time of Mary anointing Jesus' feet with a perfume, you remember. And John comments about what Judas says. 
that he says that the perfume being spilt on Jesus' feet was a waste. Which might have been an interesting point if we hadn't have got the following comment from John. That Judas was a thief. And what he wanted was the money for himself. So we don't get a great picture of this guy, Judas, do we? Thief and betrayer. But let's not kid ourselves also that we're any more righteous. In our day and age, we have plenty of opportunity to steal and betray others. We often don't even need to leave our house anymore. Technology enables us to do it via the internet. We can do it via an email. We can take things online that aren't ours. But I think what's interesting in Judas's case is that here is a man who has just spent three years walking around with Jesus, the Son of God in human form. What went wrong? He was eyewitness to some of the amazing things in history. He was the receiver of some of the most life-changing, challenging teaching. Jesus spoke of salvation. He spoke of joy. He spoke of life. He spoke of fullness. He spoke of satisfaction. But Judas couldn't see it. It was right in front of him, but he was blind to it. You know, when Jesus, the creator of the universe, stood right in front of him, he couldn't even recognize it. His worldview was wrong. His understanding of life was wrong. He didn't realize that he needed saving. He didn't realize that he needed Jesus. You know, there are many things in life that blind us. These things that we see as the purpose of life, often good things, sometimes distorted but we raise them up to ultimate things and they take the place that God should take and they blind us to spiritual things. We know from the Gospels that one of these things uh, that plagued Judas was greed. Maybe there were other things, but even that one thing is enough. Whatever it was, Judas's sin blinded him to the truth of reality. And in doing so, led him to make an agreement with the devil. We're told this earlier in Matthew, earlier in the text, where Judas makes an agreement that led him to betray Jesus. Even till the end, Judas kept his pretense with regard to Jesus. He greeted him in this passage we see with the title of rabbi and a kiss. I think it's interesting just to see the hardness of Judas's heart and the hardness of a heart full of sin. That he actually went right up to Jesus, looked him in the face and betrayed him. Not even flinching. Judas had his idols and they blinded him to the truth of Jesus. So much so that even while he honoured Jesus with his lips, he betrayed him with his actions. Actually, it's interesting that later we learn that Judas realized what he'd done. He even throws the coins back, you know, to the Pharisees. But this realization didn't lead to repentance as it should have done. It didn't lead to a change of mind. Instead, that realization of sin simply crushed him because of the guilt that he took. 
This happened because the very sin that was crushing him, that very guilt, was the same thing that was blinding him to the only form of salvation that he could have, and that's through Jesus. So in the end, he he despairs of life and commits suicide. Let's all beware of unrepentant sin because it leads to death. So that's Judas. What of Peter? Peter's also one of the twelve, as Judas was. But we know a lot more about Peter. We see that his heart is different. He's had a conversion experience, and his actions and understanding and vision of who Jesus is testifies to this. We read earlier in Matthew 16, verse 16, where Peter testifies to Jesus being the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. In John 6, 68, we also see Peter's confession of faith. Um, After a particularly difficult set of teaching, many of those who've been following Jesus turned and left. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, will you leave also? And Peter says, no. Only you have the words of eternal life. So we see that Peter had an amazing understanding and a faith of who Jesus was. So why do we find him here being rebuked? I thought about this a lot, and I think we find Peter's faith is true, and his understanding of what's been revealed is true. But I think what we see here in Peter is a lack of maturity in his faith. You see, Jesus had given Peter all the information that he needed, but he wasn't implementing it correctly. We see it again and again in the Gospels with the other disciples also. Jesus speaks of heavenly things, and all they can do is think of earthly things. Jesus warns the disciples, maybe you remember about the yeast of the Pharisees, and they turn around to one another and say, is he trying to say we forgot the bread? Peter had heard and understood who Jesus was, and he even declared that to be so. But he wasn't living in the life. He was still working on earthly terms. There's an interesting occasion back in Matthew 16 where Jesus raises the topic of his death. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. But Jesus comes straight back at him saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. For you're not setting your things on the mind of God, but instead on the things of man. You see, setting his mind on the things of man was showing Peter's lack of spiritual maturity. I'm not saying he wasn't a Christian, but I'm just saying he hadn't quite uh, matured to the point of seeing fully what Jesus was trying to say. And I think this passage gives us another example of that, where he pulls his sword out to defend Jesus. When even from a human point of view, this is pretty silly. There's a lot of soldiers standing there with swords and clubs. But spiritually speaking, this was totally wrong. You see, humanly speaking, the chief priests and the elders of the people were looking to take Jesus' life. And that's what Peter was lashing out at. Don't take Jesus' life. I'm willing to die for it. 
But spiritually, what the chief priests and the elders and Peter didn't quite grasp is that Jesus planned to give up his life. And this is the good news that Judas's sin blinded him to. And this is the good news that Peter's sin, Peter's lack of maturity, kept him from seeing at this moment. But this is the clear-sighted spiritualness of Jesus' obedience to the Father that made salvation possible for all of us. There's a process of sanctification and maturity through the Holy Spirit that all of us disciples need to go through. This includes all of us here if we claim uh, to be Christians. But unfortunately, the church in the West, we have a tendency to focus a lot on the lead up to salvation and we forget about the rest. Salvation is just the beginning. Life goes on and as we walk with Jesus and we walk with Jesus as our Lord in sanctification, we mature in faith as we take our mind off the things of man and we put them onto the things of God. So that brings us on to Jesus. So we've gone past the blindness of Judas, the immaturity of Peter, and what we find in Jesus is the perfect bodily representation of all that it means to be human. Perfection in relationship with the Father and to humanity. Jesus here clearly demonstrates what true obedience to the Father is. And he models the sacrifice that we're called to as Christians. You see, in the garden, only moments before, Jesus had prayed to the Father, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus actually had the right not to die for humanity. But what we actually find in this passage, that he gave up that right, and he even says it to Peter, and I think it's really interesting to see. This is what he says to Peter. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? You see, there's no hesitation here. If Jesus had decided not to go through with this, he would have just appealed to the father. And those 200 soldiers would have been in some serious trouble. But actually Jesus laid aside his rights to show us life in all its fullness. Life how it was meant to be lived. You know, we can look around, around us in society and we can see many examples of the blindness of sin in our culture. That worldview that Judas played out, and we can see it played out all around us. And we unfortunately can also find clear examples of the immaturity of Peter's worldview today as well in the church. Because the church has a habit in the West of trying to fight spiritual battles with swords. Like unfortunately when we see Christians taking their employers to, to court or we're asked to sign petitions about this and that. You see, we're not called to fight this way. We're not called to fight with swords. 
We're called to fight spiritually, in obedience, and in submission, and sacrifice. And we're called to fight in the way of radical love that Christ demonstrated on the cross when he died in our place for our sin. You see, this love is not just a wishy-washy love. This is a love that lays down its life for its enemies. It doesn't take them to court over some perceived right. It lays down its life for them. And this is something I would challenge us as Christians, if you call yourself that here this morning, to meditate on. What does this type of obedience and sacrifice look like in our lives? Am I laying my life down for the sake of my friends? Or even my enemies? Am I laying my life down for the gospel? Let's put aside our petition signing and we'll get on our knees and give ourselves sacrificially to the work of Jesus, the work of the gospel, day by day. Because the truth is, there's a world out there full of Judases who are going to hell while we fight for our rights. This is the reality. There is a seriousness to sin. And as Christians, we need to start taking it seriously. This is what we are as the church, is to be that body of Christ, the hands and feet of Christ in this world. Let's close our eyes together and bow our heads in prayer. Perhaps if you are here this morning and you've not committed your life to Jesus, maybe you've begun to recognise the Judas worldview that you've brought, bought into. Even if for years you might have been honouring Jesus with your lips, but your actions betray you. In 2 Corinthians 2.16 we read, Today is the day of salvation. Give your sin to Jesus today that you might receive eternal life. If you'd like to do this, perhaps while we just all bow our heads, maybe you could raise your hand as a way of stepping forward and declaring that today is that day of salvation. Maybe if you're a Christian here this morning, you'd like just to say to Jesus, I want to, take, I want to step up. I want to take seriously the obedience and sacrifice that you've called us to as a church. Perhaps you too would raise your hand and join us as we pray together. Dear God, I admit that I am a sinner and need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus Christ died in my place for my sin. I am willing to turn right now from my sin and accept Jesus Christ as my personal Saviour and Lord. I commit myself to you and ask you to send the Holy Spirit into my life to fill me and take control and to help me become the kind of person you want me to be. 
Thank you, Father, for loving me. In Jesus' name, amen.